Rossellini's Open City, The Founding When Manfredi, the partisan leader who has been captured by the Nazis at the end of Open City, refuses to divulge the secrets of the Committee of National Liberation, explaining that he wants to live up to the heroism of his comrades who died for their silence, the Gestapo leader, Bergmann, immediately stereotypes him as grandiloquent and insincere. You Italians, whatever party you belong to, are all addicted to rhetoric, but I'm quite sure that you will see things my way before dawn. Bergmann is proven twice wrong, both in his certainty that Manfredi will break under torture and in his characterization of all Italians of creatures of rhetoric whose deeds will never match their extravagant promises. The Nazi chief's accusation, however, is not limited to the bravado of political prisoners under Gestapo interrogation, for it extends to all of fascist Italy, whose penchant for rhetoric was so well exploited by that arch-journalist and manipulator of headlines, Benito Mussolini. Not only was rhetoric the most important subject in Italian high schools, but it was the very foundation of the national legal profession, whose members populated the ranks of the fascist hierarchy. Mussolini spoke directly to this Italian love of the grand gesture of the bella figura, whose form became an end in itself, regardless of the speaker's ability to make good on his promises. By linking Manfredi's imminent martyrdom to Bergman's indictment of the Italian rhetorical excesses, Rossellini makes the partisan's death an expiation of that cultural weakness and a prophecy of a new national style free of empty bombast. In truth, Manfredi's deeds are entirely commensurate with his words, for he acts in accordance with his pledge to reveal no partisan confidences, and his behavior under torture is the very antithesis of rhetorical in his commitment to absolute silence. Even when his supreme defiance could give vent to words, as Bergman allows him one last chance to speak and save his life, Manfredi does not deign to utter his contempt, but spits in the interrogator's face and thus condemns himself to the worst possible death. In Manfredi's rhetorical stance, Rossellini embodies his own polemic response to a cinematic tradition of historical extravaganzas, white telephone comedies, and propaganda films. Open City was to be the repudiation of an industry as wedded to rhetoric, as the Mussolini regime under which it flourished. The filmmaker's most obvious anti-rhetorical ploy was to dispose of all the physical trappings of pre-war cinema, making a virtue of the necessity imposed upon him by the straitened circumstances of a war-torn industry. The lack of studio space, the absence of sophisticated equipment, and the scarcity of film stock forced Rossellini to adopt the simplicity of means 
that was responsible for the authentic and uncontrived look of his finished product. His resort to location shooting and to understated lighting contributed to the newsreel quality which has often been ascribed to Open City. While the inconsistency of the film stock, bought in bits and pieces from street vendors, and the unstable electric current, which sometimes fell as much as 15 to 20 volts in mid-shooting, gave the film a roughness and a spontaneity matching the very historical circumstances of its birth. For Rossellini, these technical difficulties did not present obstacles so much as challenges, propelling him on to ever more inventive solutions and establishing that talent for improvisation, which would constitute one of the greatest strengths and limitations of his career. Open City is not only anti-rhetorical in its technical simplicity, but in its subject matter as well. The term chronicle has been applied again and again to describe the experiences of a group of resistance fighters set in Rome between the onset of the Nazi occupation in September 1943 and the Allied liberation of the city in June 1944. The film tells the story of Giorgio Manfredi, a resistance leader, Francesco, a printer for an underground newspaper, Pina, his fiancée and organizer of the neighborhood women, Marcello, her activist son, and Don Pietro, priest and committed partisan. In their pursuit are the Gestapo forces of occupied Rome, led by Bergmann and his henchwoman, the evil and seductive Ingrid. The link between the two groups is Marina, Manfredi's ex-mistress, who is corrupted by Nazi drugs and Ingrid's cat caresses. The film opens with the arrival of a German search party at the apartment of Manfredi, who manages to escape over the rooftops and find refuge with Francesco on the eye of his wedding, on the eve of his wedding to Pina. When a group of child terrorists dynamites the gasoline trucks, Nazi attention is called to the neighborhood and a roundup of partisans follows. Manfredi manages to elude capture again, but Francesca is caught and Pina, in her desperate pursuit of the truck that carries her fiancé away, is killed by machine gun fire. After the prisoners are freed by partisan ambush, Manfredi, who had led the assault, and Francesco seek refuge at the apartment of Marina. Rebuffed by a moralizing and unforgiving Manfredi, Marina betrays his escape plans to the SS. Now it is Francesco who eludes capture, while Manfredi, Don Pietro, and an Austrian deserter are carted off to Gestapo headquarters. In their refusal to divulge anti-fascist secrets, all three meet their deaths. The deserter by suicide, Manfredi by torture, and Don Pietro by execution. Though the events of the narrative are certainly fictionalized, the term chronicle is not misapplied. For the story is a pastiche of actual occurrences fused into a coherent whole 
whose general fidelity to the historical record far outweighs its recourse to any formal or aestheticizing effects. We made Open City, wrote Sergio Amide in 1947, under the impression, the suggestion, and the influence of what we had just lived through. More than that, we all have been the instrument of the will of the underground army that was anxious to write its page for the book of history. Indeed, the historical roots of the narrative are deep and pervasive, extending from the fact of the Nazi occupation itself to many of the particulars of the narrative action. And Freddy's initial flight from the Nazis was inspired by Amadeus' own rooftop escape. The execution of Don Pietro was drawn from that of an actual partisan priest. The death of Pino was based on an incident witnessed by the actor Aldo Fabrizi, and the bombing of the gasoline truck was modeled on an actual episode of the Resistance Youth. The character's authenticity is of two sorts, deriving either from the concrete historical figures they impersonate or the popular types they represent. Authentic in the former way is Bergmann, a composite of Gestapo chief Herbert Kapler and Nazi commander Eugen Dahlmann. Don Pietro, a fictional rendering of Don Morosini, the activist priest whose story was to be the original subject of a short documentary film, and Manfredi, a figure of resistance leader Celeste Negarville. Lacking in concrete historical counterparts, the more popular characters are authentic in another way, embodying various aspects of the city's reaction to the Nazi occupation. Francesco represents the underground press, and hence the city's commitment to keep information flowing in order to counter the partial and highly doctored coverage of the fascist news, and to further the spread of resistance ideals. Pino, as one of the organizers of the neighborhood women, represents the spirit of popular insurrection against the occupying forces while Loretta, Pina's sister, and Marina dramatize the weakness and corruptibility of those who found collaboration the easier route. It is through these last two, both daughters of the working classes, that Rossellini avoids sentimentalizing the proletariat, showing that for every Pina there is a Loretta or a Marina, ready to exploit the situation for selfish and mercenary ends. Indeed, he goes to some lengths to establish the working-class origins of the two women, making Loretta the family member who is ashamed of her humble origins, and Marina a childhood crony who has made it in the show world through fascist connections. Thus, Rossellini does not allow us to ascribe Marina's complicity to any bourgeois decadence nor to a lifelong dependence on luxury, but instead to a personality weakness that makes her succumb to the seductions of drugs, fur coats, and lush surroundings. 
The fact that Pina and Marina both share the same humble origins cannot be overstressed, for it shows that Rossellini holds Marina fully responsible for her choices, making Pina the standard against which this traitress is constantly measured. The consequences of two sets of moral decisions are embodied in these two women who are compared to each other throughout the film in terms of physical appearance, amorous expectations, emotional style, and cinematic precedence. Marina is a throwback to the femme fatale or the diva tradition of pre-war Italian cinema. We first see her in bed against a luxurious headboard with a cockle-shell design, which leads our gaze to her as the center of a glamorous set. We learn later that this elegant image costs her to maintain in the midst of a wartime economy. Her showgirl salary suffices to pay for her silk stockings and cigarettes alone, and necessitates a more lucrative sideline to cover the cost of room and board. Plain, unpretentious Pina, on the other hand, is a reverse diva who dresses in bobby socks and allows herself the luxury of silk stockings only once on her wedding day. Whereas Marina first appears to us alone in a private space, Pina is introduced to us as she emerges from a crowd, establishing her status as a poplana, whose identity is very much bound up with the community of which she is both organizer and member. Her language, with its dialectical cadences and colloquialisms, is another social indicator, which locates her squarely in the popular midst. Marina instead speaks a neutral, non-regional Italian, in keeping with her pretensions to social mobility. As the quintessential poplana, Pina incarnates the strength and self-possession that we see evidenced throughout the neighborhood, especially in the scene of the Nazi raid where women stand up to the German soldiers with great anger and personal dignity. Paradoxically, Pina's very strength is what leads to her destruction, for it will not let her watch as the Nazis cart off Francesco, but compels her to run after him and face the ensuing barrage of machine gun fire. While Pina dies in the name of strength and defiance, Marina survives because of her weakness, and when confronted by the spectacle of her dead lover Manfredi, she merely faints in a coward's version of Pina's heroic death. Perhaps the most telling commentary on the differences between the two women emerges from parallel conversations with their respective partners in love. To get any privacy, Pina and Francesco must talk on the stairwell outside their apartments, and although Pina is exhausted and demoralized by her feud with Loretta, Francesco is able to encourage her with his partisan prophecies of a better world. Theirs is a tender and idealistic exchange, punctuated by humorous recollections and hopeful foreshadowings. The analogous conversation between Marina and Manfredi is diametrically opposed in staging, substance, and tone. Set in Marina's diva boudoir, the discussion quickly degenerates 
into accusations and counter-accusations of the bitterest and most vindictive sort, ending in a stalemate of rigid, mutually defensive positions that admit of no compromise or progress. Where the dialogue between Pina and Francesco is future-oriented and transcends the dilemmas of self, that of Marina and Manfredi, is limited to egocentric concerns that confine them to an immobile present. Underlying the interpersonal success of the one woman and the emotional bankruptcy of the other is their divergent approach to love itself, which Pina sees as an internal drive set in motion by an act of free will, while Marina sees it as an external force that tyrannizes those who become its prey. For Pina, the woman in love is an active determinant of her fate and is morally accountable for the course of her passion, while Marina sees herself as the passive victim of an uncontrollable power to which she abdicates all personal responsibility. Pina reveals her activist stance in responding to Manfredi's nostalgia for Marina's simple working-class roots. When, she, when he concludes, she's not the right kind of woman for me, maybe if I'd known her before, when she lived in Via Tiburtina, Pina replies, well, a woman can always change, especially when she's in love. While Pina sees the woman as the author of her own amorous transformation, Marina attributes love's alchemy to an another source. If you'd really loved me, she tells Manfredi, you have changed me, thus externalizing the cause of her moral decline, just as later she will project onto drugs and the enticements of Ingrid all responsibility for her forthcoming betrayals. Marina's concept of love as a transcendent and destructive passion is given words by the song overheard in her dressing room while she ransacks her purse for narcotics. At Copacabana, at Copacabana, on moonlit nights, the woman who loves you kisses you, takes you, holds you, enfolds you, inflames you with love. At Copacabana, they steal your heart. At Copacabana is the life of love. The exotic setting, loss of self, the forfeit of control, all identify this as the predatory passion that subsumes the beloved into another order of being where conscience and consciousness are left behind. Ironically, it is Ingrid, appearing at the end of the scene with caresses and more drugs, who fulfills this Copacabana sentiment, playing the fond fatale to Marina and revealing the exploitative and dehumanizing implications of such a passion. The transformations worked by love, be they the malignant, externally imposed ones of Marina, or the purifying, internally motivated ones of Pina, are not limited to 
the thematic level of the film, but also reveal important formal and symbolic applications. Indeed, the entire film may be said to be about transformations of people, of genres, and of the systems of signification that typify our culture. Rossellini's interest in the second and third kinds of transformations is what makes him the founder of a new cinematic mode and of a new cultural vision. In short, it is what makes him the first neorealist. The generic transformation is the most obvious and easiest to identify, thanks to Rossellini's own celebration of the spontaneous creations of the actors, of Anna Magnani and of Aldo Fabrizio in particular. He goes on to cite their debt to the vaudeville stage, which offered such valuable training to the leads in his film, making the regional theater both in its popular manifestations, the variety shows or the avanspettacoli, and in its more formal literary versions, the dialectical, the dialectical plays of Eduardo de Filippo, for example. One of the most important influences on Open City. Indeed, this source explains much in the tone and staging of the film, from the use of dialect itself to the slapstick humor which is handled so brilliantly and appropriately to provide relief in the moments of almost unbearable dramatic intensity. Thus, the anxiety generated by the Nazi roundup is lightened by Don Pietro's faked administration of the last rites to the old man who provides his and Marcello's excuse for entering the tenement under Nazi surveillance to confiscate the contents of the boy terrorist's arsenal. Rather than dissipate the dramatic tension of the scene, this interlude both heightens and eventually resolves it by providing the unexpected comic ending to a seemingly impossible predicament. When the old man sees Don Pietro about to give extreme unction, he rebels with every ounce of the considerable life energy remaining in him. With the soldiers about to enter any minute, and the old man's panic rising, Don Pietro has no time to lose. Rossellini spares us the actual scene of the priests knocking the man unconscious with a frying pan, since the violence of such a spectacle would diminish our delight and surprise at the good outcome of his expedient. Another homage to the slapstick tradition of regional theater is the scene of the boys' homecoming after their successful demolition of the gasoline truck. Puffed up by their daring, they face the parental consequences of their post-curfew return with bravado, only to be spanked ignobly like the small children they really are. Rossellini uses the architecture of the tenement to great advantage, as each, as each landing provides a resounding punishment for the children who live on it. Again, Rossellini spares us the gory details, 
focusing instead on the other children whose faces register the fact of the punishments suffered by their comrades within. As the group of survivors dwindles at each landing, the facial expressions deteriorate with the knowledge that we're next. The sequence is brilliant not only in its mixture of comic and cinematic effects, but in the wonderful irony that condemns those who defied Nazi authority to the tyranny of parental authority, which not only afflicts, but far worse, infantilizes its victims.